If you'd like to turn to 1 Peter 3 in your Bibles, chapter 3, verse 18. We're actually going back um, in 1 Peter because we actually had to, we missed this passage because of the snow, would you believe it? Nice warm day like this. Um, and it's actually one of those passages it would be really easy to conveniently forget because it's actually one of the most difficult passages to understand. Martin Luther wrote about this passage in, in his typical blunt, forthright way. A wonderful text is this and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament. So I do not know for a certainty what Peter means. I cannot explain it. And I don't know who has explained it. Well, I, if, if Luther can't get it, so I certainly can't. Right, but I'll do my best. And uh, it, it is one of those passages, actually, that's people, there's been reams and reams written about it. Well, I like a challenge. So... Um, a canon of the Anglican Church, after a very lively debate in which he'd been accused of holding extreme views, was reduced to saying at the end, well, let's all agree. I'm extremely right and you're extremely wrong. So I wouldn't even dream of saying something like that, but I'll share my thoughts. 1 Peter 3 verse 18. Always helps, of course, to, to understand the context. And the general context of Peter, as we found, is that Peter's writing to a suffering church and he's writing to encourage them and just to comfort them and to spur them on because not only are they suffering they're going to suffer even more because the persecution increased during this time under the emperor Nero and so in, the, in this passage just prior to it verses 13 to 17 which I'm not going to read but Peter had returned to that theme of suffering and he'd been encouraging the, the believers to live upright lives and honest lives so that if they suffered, at least they weren't suffering for wrong things, you know, for living a bad life. So if they were persecuted, the people who were persecuting them might be challenged by their good lives. That's his thought. And they might be ashamed. And then he gives the example in verse 18 of Jesus, who also suffered. Let me read uh, verse, chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. And so, so the encouragement is, is to follow, if you like, the example of Jesus, who suffered for his faith and he suffered for his stand and his life and his sufferings actually led to immeasurable good didn't they because of his sufferings we are here because of his sufferings our sins have been paid for and not only that but his sufferings led to his exaltation verse 22 who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. So his suffering wasn't in vain. And neither will yours be, and mine be, if we are called ever to suffer. We might not be called to suffer 
as in Peter's day, but we might. We don't know, do we? But even just rejection and ridicule, even people ignoring us, is, is, is in a sense, is a form of suffering. So we shouldn't be surprised when we suffer. Jesus suffered. He lived a perfect life. And if Jesus suffered for his life and for his holiness and for his teaching, then we mustn't be surprised if we are ever called to suffer. Jesus said, didn't he, that the servant is ab isn't above his master. But just because we're not taken by surprise by suffering, that actually doesn't make it any easier. You know, it still hurts to suffer. It still hurts to be persecuted. But at least we will know that actually Jesus has gone before us. And so Jesus suffered, died for our sins, but, praise God, that wasn't all. He rose from the dead. He was raised to life. That wasn't the end of the story. So Peter goes on to say, again, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh. That's, he died, physically died, put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. So on that cross, his body died put to death in the flesh. The NIV has put to death in the body. But then it goes on to say, but made alive by the Spirit. But what Spirit? What Spirit is he talking about? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? So we say, it's the Holy Spirit because he's got a capital S. That's my, sorry, in your, in your way, <laughs> capital S, right? But here's the thing, in the Greek... There's no capitals. So you, you have to judge from the context whether it's spirit with a capital S or spirit with a small s. Okay? Now, there is a contrast in that verse between the flesh, Jesus dying in the flesh, but made alive by or in the spirit. So it's likely that actually the spirit there is the small spirit, the human spirit. That's a, that's a possibility. There's differences of opinion in this. So the NIV, if you've got an NIV, you might have a footnote that actually says he was put to death in the flesh. Uh, uh, sorry, it speaks about being alive in the spirit. Put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit with a small s. Okay, so that's an alternative. And it's, that's how I would read this. So Jesus was died in the flesh, in the body, and made alive in the spirit, in his spirit. So, if that's so, it would mean that Jesus' spirit died on the cross. If it was made alive in the spirit, then it must have died. That would be so, wouldn't it? Now, when did Jesus' spirit die? Did his spirit die? Well, it, this is one of the great mysteries of the, of the, of the, of the God and of, the, of, of, the, of, of Christ. But we do know that as Jesus hung on the cross, the sins of the world were placed on him. 
He, he died for all of our sins. And sin brings separation from God. And separation from God means what? Spiritual death. It means death. So on that cross, I, as I would see it, Jesus experienced in some way some kind of spiritual death. He, di he didn't cease to exist. He couldn't. He's eternal. You can't, can't stop existing. He could never go out of existence because he's God. But he experienced some kind of spiritual death on that cross. But then his spirit was made alive. And do you remember on the cross he cried out after that? He cried, Father, into your hands I commend my what? My spirit. Now I think that's significant that he used the word Father. Just a few moments before he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But here he says, Father. It's as though he's back in communion with his Father. So, it could be that on the cross, as Jesus bore the sin of the world, his spirit died in some way. He was spiritually dead. But then on the cross, his spirit was given new life as he cried out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So you can hold that together. You can think about that. There's something to think about. Peter then goes on to say, and I'm, I'm going to read the NIV with that footnote, so it might not quite tie in with this, but let, because it follows on from the thought that I've given. So, verse 18, towards the end of the verse, it says, Jesus, he was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. So that's his spirit was revived, given life, small s. Verse 19, then it says, in which, in which, in that spirit, in his spirit... He went, in other, in other words, in his resurrection spirit, in his resurrected spirit, and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. Verse 20. And who were the imprisoned spirits? To those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. Have you ever wondered what happened to Jesus between the time when he died and his resurrection? Maybe you haven't. I've, I've sometimes thought about that. What, what, what was Jesus doing between Good Friday and Easter Sunday? Well, one of the things I think is brought out in this passage. That's what Peter is talking about. Let me just say, there are many, many views about this. But let me tell you what makes sense to me. Though Jesus' body died on the cross, his spirit at some point on that cross was made alive. And in his spirit, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. So this is what happened, as I understand it, between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. During that time, he went in his spirit and preached to the spirits in prison. One Sunday, as people arrived at church, they find that about 20 seats in the middle aisle had been blocked off. And a notice was put on each seat saying, reserved for the spirits. 
And they were talking about this in the congregation before the service, and they were wondering whether the, the minister had gone to completely off track. And then he got up, and he welcomed everybody who was there, and then he welcomed everyone who he'd visited the week before, who had said to him they wouldn't be there on Sunday, but they'd be there in spirit. All right? So, who, who were the spirits in prison? Who were the spirits in prison? Verse 21 tells us, these were the spirits who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Some say that that actually shows that Jesus preached during that period on the cross, went into hell, as it were, preached to the souls of people who had died in Noah's day in unbelief and were judged and gave them a second chance. He preached the gospel to them. That, that's a very, people argue that. The only thing that's wrong with that is it's totally wrong. Right? There's no second chance of salvation. The Bible makes that clear. You know, it is appointed unto man once to die, but after that, the judgment. We can't, we can't get round that. The second thing wrong with that interpretation is why would Jesus go and preach just to those who had died in Noah's day? What about those who died in Abraham's day? Or in Moses' day or David's day? It just didn't make sense. That. Here's another view. This is Wayne Grudem. And who am I to argue with Wayne Grudem? He is an amazing uh, theologian and uh, I've, I've great help by him. But I, I don't know whether I agree with this. His view is that actually this isn't talking about between Good Friday and Easter. What, what Peter is saying is that Jesus was preaching through Noah in Noah's day to the people of his day. Okay, so Noah was preaching, and he was a preacher of righteousness. He preached and preached and preached. And what, what Wayne Gruden says is that actually this is P, uh, Peter saying that Jesus preached through Noah in those days and preached the gospel. The only problem, well, not the only problem, one of the problems that I do have with that is that it talks about spirits, not people. Jesus preached to the spirits. And nowhere in the New Testament does anybody, is, is, are people ever refer to as spirits? In fact, Peter speaks of people as souls. So, verse, let me see, verse, um, I've just lost my place because I've gone off track here. Is it the verse before? Let's have a see. Souls, yes, verse 20 says souls. Oh, here we are, yeah. What, um, while the ark was being built, yeah, where it is, wherever it is, anyway, it says souls, doesn't it, in uh, verse 20. Verse 20, yeah. Eight souls were saved through water. Peter always uses that word souls for people. So it, it's unlikely that he's talking about people when he's talking about spirits. So who is he speaking about? Well, I, I th just take it literally that Peter is literally talking about the spirits 
who are held in prison by God, evil spirits, demons, who are held in prison in chains. And Jesus went and preached to them. I'll explain what I mean by that. But look at 2 Peter. Look at 2 Peter. Chapter 2 and verse 4 and 5. So verse 4 says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, so those will be the fallen angels, who are the spirits, the demons of today, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Okay, so that speaks of, it's a mystery, isn't it? But somehow, sometime, God judged some fallen angels, some demons, and enchained them in, in, this, in hell, he says, in the reserve for judgment, in the darkest pit. Verse 5, and then he connects it in a way to Noah, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah. One of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. So in verse 4 he mentions the fallen angels who came under some special judgment from God, who are bound with chains in this deepest prison awaiting judgment. And in the next verse he mentions Noah. So there's Noah's day, okay? A similar reference is made in Jude. So just go a bit further on. Jude is only one chapter, it's verse 5 and 6. It doesn't mention Noah, but here it says, Jude verse 5. But I want to remind you that though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own habitation, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. That proper domain, they didn't keep the proper domain. It, it, it suggests they somehow went beyond the boundaries that, even, that God had even set the demons. Right? The, there, are, there are literally spirit. We, we, we are living in a time when there are principalities and powers. We know that. There always has been a spiritual warfare. And it seems that God... Gives them rain, as it were. He sends their boundaries, sets their boundaries. And it seems that some overstep the boundary. This is, this is what the, it seems to me, this is what it's saying. And because of that, God took action against them. And he judged them there and then. And he bound them in, these ever, in everlasting chains in the spirit realm. And they're waiting now there for that day of full judgment. Do you remember when Jesus set the, the Gadarene man free? The man of the Gadarenes? And he was the man who was cutting himself and chained and he broke the chains. When the demons, when Jesus addressed the demons, they pleaded with him not to send them to the abyss. If you can read about it. So the demons, what, what's the abyss? Well, could it have been this place, this place of judgment, this place of darkest torment? That the, the worst demons, if you like, are, are held in. And so, if that's right, in Noah's day, 
what it's saying is these worst of demons were active. They were somehow, they'd somehow overstepped the boundaries that God had set for them, and they were judged by God. What, what happened in Noah's day? It's not a rhetorical question. <laughs> there was a flood. Why was there a flood? Because of the wickedness, wasn't it, of the earth. Why hasn't God flooded the world since? Well, because of the rain, but we know that, yeah. But was there something about that day that was especially wicked? Just, just turn back to Genesis 6. You know, thinking all this through. Was, it, was there something about that day, because of the demonic activity that was spread out in a, in a way that we haven't experienced since? Genesis chapter 6. Verses 5 to 7. Let's read that. It says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So by Noah's day, it, it, it's, it's saying that there'd been this total descent into depravity across the whole of society. And, and it, there was corruption right through evil abounded everywhere. And, and was it worse than today? Well, I, I believe it was. It, it, was worse, it, it, it had affected every part of society of that day. Just look at... Um, Verse 5, is it again? The NIV, let me just read the NIV at the end. It says, Every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And verse 11 and 12 goes on to say this. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth... And indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. In other words, everything, everywhere, was corrupted, depraved, and, and, and debased. There was violence everywhere. It was in the extreme. And so much so that God had to intervene it, it, to save humanity. So degraded were people. Now, the question is, how had it got to this? You know, how had it got to that in Noah's day? Why was it like that? Well, I think these verses in 1 Peter 3 give the answer, and it suggests that there was special demonic activity at that time <coughs> that was inflaming evil. And somehow, I don't know, understand it, demons had overstepped their mark, the boundaries that God himself had set. And it was so serious even for demons, demons, that it warranted God's intervention. There was a flood and the demons were in prison. Those, who had, those that had overstepped the mark. Maybe, I, I don't know. Maybe it was widespread demon possession. It might have been. I don't know. We're not told that. But whatever it was, because of, sin, because of it, sin raged at the whole world. You know, we, people say, oh, it's God is unfair. He, he, he judges and he flooded the world. How cruel that is. Actually, it could have been a saving act to save his creation 
because the, 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 the violence, the corruption, the awful spirit, demonic spirits were so rife that it was actually a, an act of kindness and salvation. And that accounts, doesn't it, for the fact that Noah preached, some think it preached as long as he built the ark. Some think it, it took him a hundred years. You can work out the years that it took for Noah to build the ark. It says he was a preacher of righteousness, but how many were saved? Just his family. So he preached for a hundred years, man of God, preached about the judgment, preached about righteousness, and not one person listened. Not one person heard. You know, I think if I'd preached like that, I'd get a bit discouraged. If I preached the gospel, my heart out for a hundred years and not one person responded, I'd think, what's wrong with me? And yet Noah, rather, was a man of God and he was faithful and God counted him faithful enough to keep him, to put him in the hall of fame, you know, the hall of faith, rather, the Hebrews 11. This man of faith. Which is a real encouragement, you know. We, we should never, ever, ever judge our um, success, if you like, by success. We should never judge how we're doing by the, it, it, somehow the fruit, but actually the success. There's a lot of that to, today. Actually, God judges by faithfulness. God judges our, our, our fruit, our service by faithfulness. How faithful we are. So back to the text. Let's have a look then, just to sort of bring this together. 1 Peter 3.19 now. So it says, so I'll, I'll pick it up at the end of verse 18. Uh, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. I'll put it like that, made alive in the spirit. By which, it could be by which, in the spirit. Also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now that word preached isn't the word for where, where it's used in the gospel for preaching the gospel. It's another word. It just means proclaim. He proclaimed. So he wasn't preaching to convert these demon spirits. He was proclaiming. It means to declare. We're not told what he proclaimed. But I've no doubt he was he's proclaiming. It's finished. You're defeated. I've triumphed over you, that sort of thing. I'm sure, I'm sure that was the sort of declaration. This was a proclamation. That the, it, it was all done. Their power over sin and over death had been defeated, had been broken. And I'm sure that's what he proclaimed. And I think verse 22 of chapter 3 reinforces that by saying that Jesus has now gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. So how, how does that apply to us and, and, and how does it relate to us today? What can we take from it? Well, we need to remember, why did Peter write this? He, he wrote it to edify, to encourage and, and exhort suffering people. So what an encouragement that must have been. For, for a really beleaguered people, you know, people who were just, just they were a minority and, and, and it seemed as though Satan was on the, on the rampage and, and, and they, they were being beaten. To know and to be reminded that Satan was a defeated foe. That's, what, that's why he's writing this. He's reminding them that Christ's victory was secure. That this had been proclaimed in the pit of 
the deepest part of Hades itself. And that the victory had been won. And that's an encouragement to us today. I actually believe that as the coming of the Lord becomes closer, we will become more and more like Noah's day. Sin will abound. And there will be a great increase in demonic activity. I really do believe that. Um, I think the scriptures indicate that and show that there will be a, a darkening. But to know however dark it gets that Christ has won the victory. However strong Satan seems, his doom has been proclaimed. However much it seems that evil seems to abound and, and it seems to, you know, every everything, whether it be the television, whether it be the media, whatever it is, it seems that sin is on the throne, as it were. Satan's on the throne. No, he's not. He's already been defeated. And through Christ's death and resurrection, his power has been broken. And the Bible's very clear that we don't fight for victory, we fight from victory. We're on the victory side. Because Jesus has won that victory through his death and resurrection and ascension. So, I'm going to stop there. I'm not going to go even going to think about verse 22. And 21 and 22. Well, it looks really interesting about baptism. But anyway, that's, uh, that's for another preacher sometime. Good, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We know that there are times and that there are parts which are hard. And uh, there are things which we have to wrestle with. But Lord, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that the, down the years, even though there's been uh, differences of opinion, Lord, that uh, you, you, you have still worked through those opinions. And even, Lord, some of the things that we've talked about today, if we've not quite understood rightly, Lord, you can still use that. And I pray, Lord, that you would take your word and, and, and encourage our hearts. Give us the strength, we pray, to hold on to that wonderful truth that Christ has won the victory. And that, Lord, in our lives, whatever we see around us, in the world around us, in people, we know, Lord, that Jesus has overcome Satan. That, Lord, whatever happens, we're hidden with Christ in God. And, Lord, we pray that we'd live this out, this victory, in the confidence that the Holy Spirit brings. Lord, thank you that Jesus was raised from the dead. Thank you that he's alive today. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we're we going to sing. We're not going to sing a hymn. We're going to sing a song. <laughs> but I don't know which one it is. Lord, we thank you that death could not hold you. That you broke those chains of death. And Lord, thank you that because you are risen, that we can look forward to an eternity with Christ. Thank you that we are risen with him. And because of that, Lord, we can be sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Lord, thank you. Thank you for our fellowship. Thank you for this time, Lord, to be able to worship you in song and through the word. And Lord, we pray that you'd bless us now as we go. And Lord, into this week, we ask that you'd help us to, Lord, walk with you.
to know your presence, to know that joy filling our hearts. And Lord, helping us, we pray, by your Spirit, to serve you and live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.